little plug on Monday night at 6 p.m. Uh, there is a uh, documentary uh, called The Even, Even Exile, speaking uh, truth into a world of, that has been, I would call, completely destroyed by feminism. How do we raise up our young ladies to be godly men and women? Uh, godly women, especially in this one. <laughs> yeah, uh, Freudian slip there. Godly uh, women, and uh, what does it even look like as a, as a lady? How do we follow Christ and what he's called us to as the world crashes against and I would say has destroyed? Uh, what does it mean to be feminine? What does it mean to be a godly woman? And so the ladies watched this um, several months ago, and... Uh, the more we thought about it, the more we were saying how important it is for dads as well as anyone who interacts with the next generation as well as anyone who interacts with anyone who interacts with anyone. It would be great for them to uh, wrestle through this and to see it again. And so Monday night at 6 p.m. Uh, here at church, uh, we will be showing it uh, as, a, as a body and then having some uh, discussion time afterwards. So there's your little plug. You're not doing anything Monday night anyway, so you'll be there, right? All right. Uh, let's pray and then get into this. Dearly Father, as we open your word, we stand amazed that, that you would come down to earth, and not only come down to earth, but that you would leave your word to clearly point us to the truth. Help us to drink deeply of the truth today. All week long, the voices of the world have been calling out to us to try to Drink deeply of things that do not satisfy. So help our minds and our hearts to be renewed daily by the word. And renewed again here to see how we are to live. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm going to give you a little snapshot into the Yorgi world, all right, to start off here. And my wife wonders where are we going with this. So I really do not like showing up late to things, all right. I, I, it bothers me that if I'm not there ahead of time, if we're even 15, 20 minutes ahead of time, I'm still stressing, did we get there in enough time? Uh, just to give you a little inkling, usually, so church starts at 10, 15 here, I show up at 7, all right? On Sunday mornings, I practice a sermon, and I just like to make sure I'm here ahead of time. And so then, all of a sudden, you take my, my thinking of that, and this is a snapshot of what it looks like at the Yorgi household on a given day. All right, we're leaving in five minutes, and you hear from the... I didn't know we were going anywhere. Another one, Dad, I'm not ready yet. I still need to take a shower. Why are we leaving so early? And then another call gets out. I can't find my shoes. Well, what shoes do I need to wear? And then someone comes down the steps and you look and go, you're not wearing that to where we're going. Well, you told me to hurry up and this is what I could find. I can't find my belt. Do I need a belt? And then we argue about the value of a belt versus not a value of a belt. And then we, all these things are going on and, and I say to them, why are you waiting to the last minute to get ready, right? And we just, you shove them all in the car, you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden you hear from the back seat, hey, uh, mom and dad, I thought my shoes were in the car, and they're not. All right, then we're looking around, are there any other shoes in the car that we can stick on you? Because there's one thing that's not happening, we're not turning around. Like, for some reason, we're off. And then they go, well, we're rushing to get there anyway early just so we can stand there and look at each other. Like, why do we need to get there that early? And this whole thing is revolving around the idea that I look at my kids and I say, you need to be ready. All right, be ready. And so my definition of being ready is totally different of their definition of being ready. Because even when we acknowledged, you need to be ready to go, we're leaving in two minutes, they go, I've got it covered. I'm like, but you're not even ready. And we go through this 
What does it mean to be ready? So with that all being said, the title of today's passage is Be Ready. But we're going to talk about what does that mean to be ready. We're going to see it here in the text where Peter is going to say to be ready to give something. And what does that even look like? What does it mean to be prepared for what Peter is doing? And how do we become prepared? So 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you would suffer for righteousness sake... You'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." So we start off here in verse 13. There's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question, especially biblically speaking, the answer to the rhetorical question should be obvious. I'll give you one that Paul uses in Romans 6 when he says, Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? He should, doesn't even have to pen, God forbid, or no. It's an obvious that no. And so when the Bible asks a rhetorical question, they're telling you that the context should be able to explain to you the answer. And so the question in front of us is this. Now, all right, is there anyone that's going to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? And you say, well, um, Peter, uh, didn't you just say here in chapter 220? Listen to what he said. For what credit is there if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you are good and suffer, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So the question is now, who, the, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? And you would think the answer is, Nobody, but Peter just said, you're going to do what is right and suffer. So is Peter forgetting literally what he just penned back in 2.20? What's going on here? So let's get a little bit more of the context of the passage, because look at verse 12, back up one verse. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And Peter here again is quoting out of Psalm 34. Remember when David was on the run and David is talking about even though I'm on the run from all of these things, the world is throwing at me. My safety and security is found in God. And so literally on the heels of this, Peter writes the statement. So who's there to harm you if you're doing good? And everybody in their minds going, I could give you the list like John, Steve, Bob, all these other ones, because there will be people that are out to get me. But the answer to this is supposed to be no, because here's what we know that is happening. We know, and we see this, and we're going to see this throughout all of these things, that nothing comes into the believer's life that God has not willed. And so anything that's coming in, for, the, for those of us who are in Christ, we can say we are secure in Christ because nothing is coming into my life that God has not willed for my good. Even though you may look at it and go, it doesn't seem good at the moment, but it is good because God only can give what is good. And so when he gives us, this is good for us. And so as we look through these things, because we know the Bible tells us that God's will is good and all wise. And the question then is, do we trust him when all of a sudden there's this suffering that seems to be coming into my life? Do I really trust that his way is good and wise? Because only from that spot can you ever get to the rest of these verses here. So what we're going to see here is a couple of things. In order to be ready, it's going to come from a life. And what does this life look like that is ready? Well, verse 
14 is going to tell us. Point number one is a life that is ready, and we'll find out what you're ready for, but a life that is ready is a life of suffering. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Here's what Peter is telling us. He's saying, listen, you're going to suffer for doing the right thing. There will be times you will suffer, and you are doing the right thing, but suffering is coming in to your life, literally, you will be blessed. Peter here is quoting one of the Beatitudes, where Jesus literally in the Sermon on the Mount stands up and says, Blessed are those who, are, who suffer and are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter here is remind, reminding us of what Christ taught, literally saying, if you follow Christ, suffering will happen. But what are you supposed to do? Have no fear of them, don't even be troubled. Why? Again, because God in his all wise way is causing these things to happen for your good. When we think of the idea of suffering for righteousness sake, this here is a very broad category. It's talking about everything from the weird rolling of their eyes to the idea that you, got, you just lost your head. All right. So this idea for suffering for righteousness sake is a broad category. And, we're, and our job is to not sit here and go, hmm, I'm suffering more than you or that person suffered more. This is called suffering for the cause of Christ. But it's interesting Staying with Peter here, turn to uh, 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. To get a little bit idea of what he's talking about here. Peter says in chapter 4, 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. All right, a little bit of what he's saying is like, you will be insulted. How do you know... This insulting is coming. You're insulted for the cause of Christ. Why? Because people see the glory of God resting on you and a world that hates the things of God, a world that is completely going the other way, a world that cannot stand for truth. All of a sudden, if you are a follower of God, you stand for truth. And the world that is continually trying to say, no, there is no right or wrong. It's just all made up as we go along. By you standing for what God's word says will cause you to stand out and will cause you to be insulted. People will try because they can't handle that there is a right and a wrong. We want it to be all subjective. We want it all to just make it up as we go along. And all of a sudden, someone stands and says, I'm not standing on my own authority. I'm standing on the authority of God's word and I'm following what God's word has to say and the world says we can't handle that so what we're going to do, we're going to mock it, we're going to marginalize it and we're going to push it to the side so if we can make it suffer enough, maybe they'll just be quiet. And so what has happened is, sadly in our day and age, when the insults start coming, when all of these other things are coming down our road, I would argue the church has embraced the whole political, cultural way the political correctness way that we don't no longer just say the truth as the truth we say well how can we just soften the message and you go the message of god's word is divisive it literally tells you that it will divide mother from child it is it has its work and when it works it will divide the sheep from the goats these are the things that god's word says but we don't become offensive just to offend i want to make sure we're clear on that you don't just go walking into something and say god's words offend so should i all right that's not what we're called to do we're called to share the truth because the truth is what exposes the lie. And as we're doing this, it's interesting. Peter is writing these things. Think about who this guy is. Peter, as we look at him in the Gospels, Peter was the guy that many times, sadly, his mouth went before his brain. All right, and he would say things and then later we go, maybe I should have said that a little differently. There was one time Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And Peter goes, you're not dying. 
And God literally says that literally that thought process is satanic. That is coming from Satan. Get behind me because what would Satan want to do? Derail the plan. And Peter's not even thinking. He's like, you're not going to die. And Christ is like, yes, I am. That has been planned before the foundation of the world. Get behind me. But Peter, the same guy that said, I'm going through thick or thin, is the same guy that on the night Jesus is being crucified, he's standing there, and he denies that he even knows Jesus once, and then he gets a, approached again, and even in greater anger and frustration, I don't know this, and by the time he gets to the third time he denies him, he's calling out curses that I don't even know this guy. I don't have anything to do with this guy, and now all of a sudden... Peter is in, you want to call it, the lowest part of his life, and it's not until back on the beach where Jesus meets him again and he tells him three different times, feed my sheep, that we start seeing a restoration of Peter. And Peter, the guy that was scared to death, then goes into the temple and literally saying, it's Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved but him. And we're following him all the way now where he's writing this. There's some times in our own spiritual walk, as, as Alistair Begg said, as Peter is penning this, I think it cost him. Like there might have been a gulp of, I remember the times where I was not ready. I was scared to death. I remember those times I was a coward. I remember these things because you remember this is, this is a person that through the work of the Holy Spirit that is writing these things. And he's going, I was not, by the grace of God, I was right there. Peter here, in verse 14 of 1 Peter 4, 14, is going to start to get the idea that it's a privilege to suffer because if you're suffering for the cause of Christ, that means... People are seeing Christ in you and are attacking that. Because we live in a day and age where we are tempted to not have to make a stand for anything. And it's like the old country song says, if you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for everything. And literally, this is what's happening in our culture. This is what's happening in our church. This is what we're tempted to do when we go, I, I don't know if I want to go down that route. But what Peter is telling us is literally, here's what's coming. If you are living as an exile, you're listening, living as a sojourner in this world, here is what's coming your way. Now, Peter's encounter with the resurrected Christ gave him a boldness to speak the truth. Peter's encounter with the resurrected Christ gave him a boldness to speak the truth. And what we're also seeing, too, about Peter, as we look at Peter in the Gospels, as we look at him now, what we're seeing is a man who is not defined by his past. Because if you looked at Peter's past, you could say, you were a failure. If you want to call it, as the disciples, we would probably not have given him the A-plus grade. But if we look at the way God uses him now, and this is where we, we just stand amazed that God could take a sinner like you and like me and make anything of any spiritual worth or value from it. And we look and go, it's not because of you, all right? The clay pot does not sit there and go, you know what, I'm some really good dirt. No, it's the, the master that made you who you are. But something that I want to say here is we start thinking about a life of suffering. This should not cause the church to become like an ostrich. When an ostrich gets into trouble, it literally puts its head in the sand and it hopes everything is going to go away. 
Because what Peter is saying here is this. This is what Peter did. He went into the highways and byways of life. And as he did that, he suffered for preaching the gospel. He did not, was not scared or did not, was not run in fear, nor was he troubled because he saw God for who God was and was sharing the truth there. And just a little side note, I think we can learn from Peter. A little side note of what do we, how do we take these truths that we're, that we're learning right now, how do we apply them even to right now, the understanding we're in a life of suffering, but how do we respond to that? The answer is this. We actually live in a country. I want you to think through this for a second. We live in a country where we actually elect people to make decisions for us. All right, let's think through that for a second. We actually live in a country where we elect people to make decisions for us. So if you are a follower of the truth, if you believe that God's word literally speaks into a culture and defines for us what is good, what is beautiful, and what is true, and we literally elect people that will decide things like what are taught in our schools, what laws will be made, and these people that we elect literally have worldviews that they are making decisions from, it should cause us to then pause for a second and say, would we not want and would we not desire for the church to be involved in helping make these decisions because if these people that we literally are voting for come November are making decisions that impact us, would we not say we are going into the world with hope, not with despair, we're going into the world with truth that we don't need to sit there and scratch our heads wondering what are we to do or not, but here's what happens. And this is why the part that I'm trying to say is very careful because here's the, the rail we fall off on the other side. If you didn't notice, the last time your party did not win, there were people from your party, whichever party you're in, that were literally acting as if the world was going to end. I mean, screaming and terror because their hope was in their political party. Our hope is not in our political party. Our hope is not as long as we get enough Christians elected, we're going to somehow usher in some type of utopia. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need to be involved in our world and not run to this cir little circle and say, I'm only going to hang out with people that I think the same. Because if you only hang out with people you think, uh, think like you, guess what we're not doing? You're not doing what Peter is telling us. This is the life of an exile. You're going to go out into the world and you're going to do the right thing. But guess what they're going to say? It's wrong and you're going to be marginalized. So don't get scared. Don't put your tail between your legs and go running back home and go, oh no, I just got some pushback. Peter goes, expect it. Like this is what happens. This is the world you live in. And Peter lived in that world here. And I'm saying to us as well, we live in there as well because no one else in this world actually has lasting hope but the believer. That's where point number two is, the life of hope. If you're going to be ready, you are ready to live a life of suffering. Next, you are going to be ready to live a life of hope. So what is this hope that people are, are asking about? Is it a pie-in-the-sky type of hope? No, hope, remember, is an action of the heart. Hope is an action of the heart. So the question is then, how do you see it? How do you know if someone has hope? All right. Yeah, how do you tell if there's an hope is an action of the heart? So Peter helps us with this. Remember back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, when we spent time in there talking about, and Peter's using this example, he's speaking to wives about when you're dealing with, a, a, we'll just summarize, a deadbeat husband. All right. How do you work on that whole thing? All right. Because we have 
A, because of Adam, we have a passive husband who's not following the things of God, not saved, all these other things. How is the wife supposed to do this? And Peter reminds them it is not through just berating them of what you say. It's not through manipulating them with, your, with looks or whatever. It's literally through a woman who is, their hope is in God, not in their spouse. And so since their hope is in God, they are not shaken by the failure of their husband, who they should be looking to for their leadership and everything else, Peter says, you are trust yourself to God. And so what this hope looks like is a hope that is not easily shaken because when a wife is living, as God's word says here, they are not easily shaken. What come, what may, their hope is in God, not in their spouse. Their hope is in God, not in their children. Their hope is in God, not in their ability to make money. Their hope is in God and God alone. So how does, what does this hope look like? It is hope that is not easily shaken. It is a hope that is gentle and a quiet spirit. I want to make sure you're clear on this. This is hope that is a gentle and quiet spirit. That does not mean silent. This hope still can speak, but it's coming from a spot that is calm. It's coming from a soul and a heart that is not being vexed one way or the other by the external circumstances. Even when the external circumstances are disastrous, a person who hopes in God can literally walk through that disaster with a calm heart, knowing that my faith is in God, not in my external circumstances. And last but not least, this hope here that we're going to talk about, this hope does not fear. Again, let me read verse 15. But in your hearts, regard Christ as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. All right, this concept of this hope, this hope is one that doesn't run in fear. This hope is one that a gentle, quiet spirit, it is not shaken. And what we see is the opposite of that is what the world is telling us. The world screams at us that what brings you hope is safety or material things. This is what brings you hope is your safety or material things. And again, I just want to just just let's call a spade a spade. All of a sudden. We're flying along in 2019, 2020, things are going good until all of a sudden, the United States just woke up and something could kill you, right? Like you might die one day and all of a sudden they labeled it, right? Here's a disease coming through, this disease might kill you. And all of a sudden, it's like the church woke up and said, we're gonna die someday. And that may be sooner than what I thought. And then the world tells you, you know, here's what could really kill you. If you hang out with somebody else, and your chances of dying for this are really great. And so we all, if we're not careful, what did we all start to become? Scared beyond scared. I'm going to die. And so how did we respond to that? Someone buys a roll of toilet paper and they grab two. And now all of a sudden, my hope is, do I have enough toilet paper for the next millennium? Because now my hope is in all of these things. And so we start hoarding, right? And then all of a sudden someone says there's going to be a meat shortage. So we all run out and get more meat than you could ever eat, right? And then we have this thing. And then everybody's going, hey, next year it's going to be bad. Better can. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Better start canning. And you're like, is that just the guy that sells mason jars telling me all this? Because all of these things are coming at us, right? And now all of a sudden we're entering a time. Now COVID's not going to kill us anymore, I think. Right. And that's the next thing. And then it's this thing over here. And now all of a sudden inflation's coming our route. And now you have less than what you had before and everything costs more. And all of a sudden you start stressing out all about it. Right. And before you know it, you're going, where's your hope? Really, church? Where is your hope? I mean, it's amazing how quickly we can all of a sudden say, 
Can you believe it? Because I've driven by the gas station and found myself, oh, it's like 352. What a deal! You know, like, and before in my mind, I'm going, it's because I was getting ripped off now. Now I'm just not getting ripped off as much as I could be getting ripped off. And we think, oh, you know, the budget's going to be okay. When I start living like that, my hope is so here, it's not eternal. And guess what? No one's saying, hey, Tim, where's your hope? Because you're not hoping like we hope. Your hope is in something else. The world, if they see us having the same values and they see that we are just as shaken as them, the question will not be, because notice what the text says. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. So these are people that are saying, why are you this way? And you're able to respond why I am that way because you're prepared because your hope is not in the same things that the world hopes and your hope is in God. And we go, well, how does someone then hope in God? Because the question in front of us is always this way. Am I living in such a way? Am I speaking in such a way that people literally go, Your, what you value and what you live for is totally different than what I live for? Because the world lives for the weekend. All right? The Christian is to live for eternity. And, but what happens is we can get so caught up in some of these things that are going on that we can become so short-sighted and we become so satisfied with things that do not matter that all of a sudden we start living in such a way and the world goes, you say you're different, but. And that's not to cause you to sit here and say any type of guilt trip, because I would argue, point number three, as you live this way, you will stand out. So back to a part that we skipped over in verse 15. But in your hearts, regard Christ as holy. That's a key to this. Unless God is regarded as holy, and the word holy there carries with it separate. Or you, another way of saying that word there is calling worthy of, and you can either be respect, worthy of praise, is separate from these things. That phrase there, regard God as holy, and then always be prepared to give an offense. Because in your hearts, this is how you are to live. Point number three there is the idea of treasuring Christ. A life of treasuring Christ. Now, it's interesting here. Because what we're going to see here in this point in uh, verse 15 is you're going to see that Peter spent a lot of time in the book of Isaiah. Because what Peter's going to be talking about here in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to get to Isaiah here in a second. It's Isaiah chapter 8 if you want to start flipping there. But Peter is clear that this passage in Isaiah has impacted him in other areas. And we'll see these things here real quick. So turn to Isaiah chapter 8. And you're going to need a finger in both. And so if you're ambidextrous, you can handle that. Isaiah chapter 8, and then we'll be back to 1 Peter 3 here, but I want you to be able to flip back and forth. So, Isaiah chapter 8, and we'll be in verse 12 through 14. Uh, we'll get a running start in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the ways of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both the house of Israel, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Judah. And many shall stumble on it, and shall fall and be broken. You shall be a snare and taken. All right, real quick here. 
Notice the phrase, but in your hearts regard God as holy. What is Peter saying over here? But in verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, you shall regard him as holy. Let him not be your fear. Let him be your, let him be your dread. And we go back to these ideas, this fear, this dread, this regarding God as holy here, even down to verse 14. Remember that rock of offense. That was back what Peter was talking about in chapter 2, uh, verse 8. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. This whole passage of Isaiah 8 here has been going through Peter's mind as he's writing. And what we see here is this idea that you do not fear what the world fears, but you fear God as holy. A God who is protector of those who fear him. This is what the text is saying. Those who have a proper all and understanding of God and his holiness. And understand when we look at the holiness of God and we look at a God who is to be feared, what that causes for us to do is to take seriously what he commands and what he says. Because if you don't treat God as holy, you don't fear God, you go, well then, I don't care what he has to say. I don't fear what he has to say. And this fear here is a dual part. There is an aspect of it that you go, it's an all of him. But there's also another aspect of going that I do not want to fall into the hands of a holy and righteous God. And so in that fear, it's the same idea that I would also say this. As I'm driving down the road, one of the things I want to make sure I tell my son as he's driving that when you're driving 80 miles an hour, you are in charge of that car and whatever it hits until it stops, you're in charge of that and you will be held accountable to that. So there's a little bit of a, I call it a wise fear. Same thing too when I'm teaching him how to shoot a gun. You're in charge of that bullet until it stops. So if you fire, you're in charge of everything it hits and we will be in court with everything it hits until it stops. So you do not Fire that gun if you cannot see everything around it. And I pound that into him because I'm saying, like, there's a proper fear here. There's respect. And this is what it's talking about, treating God as holy. That this is not something we take lightly. This is something if when we start to treasure God for who he truly is, we start to see him for who he truly is. Then and then alone will we start to live an obedient life. Turn real quick to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11, talking about treasuring God and how it actually changes the way we live. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 24 and 25. So in this great chapter here of faith, even dealing with some of the songs that we sang, what we're seeing here is Moses is going to grow up and as, as an exile and as a foreigner in the land of Egypt. And as he's growing up in the land of Egypt, there are going to be so many things that are going to draw his attention. All right, his people, the people of God there were slaves. All right, they were the bottom of the barrel. And you had all of the wealth of Egypt, all of the glamour, all of the beauty, all of these other things alluring him. And Moses is at a turning point in his life. Is he going to follow all of what the earth has to offer for him? I mean, as all of the pleasures and all of the joy that you could possibly have in front of him is there. Or slavery. Here's what the text tells us. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, refused to take a spot of privilege, refused to take the privilege that he could have had. But what did he do? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting 
pleasures of sin. And we've talked about this all the time. We have to make sure we acknowledge, just like Moses acknowledged, there is pleasure in sin. But what is it? Fleeting. It is here for a moment, but gone. The things that we drink deeply, thinking is going to satisfy, are just sheer cotton candy on our lips. Nothing gets cotton candy, people. But don't buy it. He considered, though, the reproach of Christ. Now, he had a considering thing, right? So here's what he has. He's taking a value statement. And this value here of going, all right, the reproach of Christ, meaning being mocked, being berated on these things for Christ's sake and the wealth and the treasures of Egypt. You're putting them there in the scale. This is a balancing thing. And what did he say? It's greater to be suffering for the cause of Christ than anything this world has to offer. Now that is easy for us when you're sitting in a world right now where most of you probably have enough gas to get home. Most of you probably have food in your cupboards. Most of you have all these other things we're literally going to eat, have leftover food. We're going to go play a game that literally probably half of the world can't even afford to play afterwards. And we sit here and go, man, we are just suffering for the Lord. And we go, really? It's easy to say these things, but here's why we need to say these things. These are the things we have to say because there will come a day where you will be, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are treasuring Christ, there will come a day where you will need to take a stand. There will come a day when the things that are in front of you, the the choices that are in front of you, will literally be asking you, will you follow? Will you do? And here's what happens. The battle has to be won in these small insignificant decisions that are made daily if you're going to succeed over here. That's why we train our minds and our hearts through the renewing of the word of God so when, the, when trouble comes, we respond in the way that we have gone over and over and over and over again. Literally the phrase, the word of I hid in my heart that I might not sit against God. We continue to memorize, we go through these things, we live in such a way that when the opportunity comes... We are ready to share. We're ready to proclaim. Now you may say, but Tim, when we think about what did we learn today, you may say, Tim, but wait a minute. I am scared to death to make a bold statement for the Lord. I would say, great, you're at Paul's level. And you go, no, 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 Paul, I mean, he went around and did all sorts of stuff. But what did Paul remind us? Paul even prayed to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, 19. Paul said, pray for boldness when we go out and preach the word. Because if you're praying for boldness, what does that mean you're struggling with? Being bold, all right? That we will boldly proclaim these things. That's what the church in Acts chapter 4 prayed for. Remember, Peter's in jail, right? Your head leader is in jail. They get together in a room. They are literally having a watch girl who's knocking on the door. And so we're kind of hunkered in here a little bit, praying that maybe Peter would be let out of jail. Because if they... Jail the leader, what does that mean about the rest of you? It's only a matter of time until you're rounded up and sent to prison. And so they were praying for boldness to share the gospel even more. But even there, it's funny, you know, like the great irony of it all, when Peter is let out of prison and they're suddenly going like, I don't know, it's not supposed to happen that fast. You know, like we're praying because the question in front of us is in those prayer, prayer for boldness, guess what that starts to happen? You will start to have opportunities then to share. And as these opportunities come, 
You say, Lord, give me boldness. But then you say, well, then how do I get that boldness? Do I just sit at home and I just say, make me bold, make me bold? You know, like just as long as I self-talk long enough and I would go, no, that doesn't work. All right, your neighbors will really think you're weird and they will not ask for the hopeless in you if you're sitting there just saying it out loud like that. What it comes from, we're about ready to sing a song here. Talking, and the, and the, the writer of this song, at the end, the song is called Anne Canopy. All right, the question literally is going, how in the world did all this take place? Me? That God would come to save a sinner like me? And as we start to understand the gospel message, as we start to grapple with it, because the gospel message, again and again, it starts off, and if you get this point wrong, you do not have the gospel. The gospel message starts off that you are a sinner on your way to hell, and there is nothing you can do that will redeem you. There is nothing you can do. It is God who does his work, but God. That's why the writers are like, how is this possible that I would get saved. It is God that it opened your eyes to see him as beautiful. And as your eyes are open, you gaze upon him and you place your faith and trust in him, which you find out even later was already a gift that God had given you. And we just stand in awe. And so when, when we start to realize this great gospel that saves us, it's the same gospel that keeps you. And as you stand in awe of the gospel, it causes you to then have a hope that is not shaken. Why? Because you're not standing here in your own strength. You would literally go and someone says, what makes you different? You go, I am just like you. Only I'm a sinner that's been saved by grace and it's all about him. Let me show you who the Savior is because guess what? If it was not for the grace of God, so would I go there as well. And we stand not in a hope that I'm hoping on myself that God's going to save me, but him and him alone. That is the battle cry that starts to change us because here's what happens. When my hope is in God and God alone, we start to realize that this world is just but a veil of tears and we start losing our grip on these things that really that we think really matter and we start taking a hold of what actually does matter because here's the funny part i have sat down with people who are wrestling over do we have enough money for retirement do we have enough money for this just like if only there was this bible story about a man who let's say he gathered all of his things into a barn and he said let's you know let's just live it up now what did God's word say? He didn't even know that today, that night, he'd be taken. And so he thought he had it all. He thought he was all of this. And all of a sudden, he was resting in his wealth. He was resting in this. He was resting in that. But when you only find your rest in the gospel and the gospel alone, when your rest is in Christ and Christ alone, he literally becomes a sanctuary for you. And so we do not look at the world and say, we could care less about you. We look at the world and we go to the world with a hope that is not easily shaken, a hope that does not, we do not get riled up as people that are going, you know what, you did this to us, we're going after you because we know vengeance is mine. God's going to do a far better job than I ever will in this of justice. We can boldly go out to a lost and dying world saying, look to him and him alone. When these things have taken place in your heart, you will be ready, not because you have made yourself ready, but because you have drank deeply of the water, like Jesus said to the woman at the well, I will give you water that you will never thirst again. And so from that quenching of our thirst, from that spot, we are ready then when the questions arise because of the way we are living, like what makes you tick? We can say what Paul says. 
for me to live as Christ. And you know what? Even death that you think the end, we say it's what? Gain, right? For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And that attitude, the world does not know what to do. And so when we come with that attitude, here's what Peter's reminding us. You'll get mocked. You will be insulted. People will do the right raised eyebrow at you. But our hope is not in that. Our hope is in him and him alone. Now, that all being said, I want to take a moment here. I have a couple more seconds here. You may say, Tim, that sounds really, really, really easy for a guy who works with Pastor Caleb. I mean, how many times is Caleb going to give me a hard time? Like, come on, you really? You know, give me the reason for the hopes within you, Tim. I mean, like, you live in a fantasy world. You only work one day a week. You know, all of these other things, right? So do you really know what's going on in the highways and byways of life? And here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't. God does. Because here's what happens. I don't know your work scenario, but I do know that God does. And I do know that God is faithful, that will not tempt you beyond what you're able, that God will go with you wherever you go, that there will be situations that will be difficult, there will be situations that are hard, but the same God that is here today is the same God that is here tomorrow, yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God that is there, and He will guide you through this. Each one of your situations is unique. Each one of them is different. Yet, they're all exactly the same. You have a lost world who needs a Savior. And what is your job to do? What has God called us? What are our marching orders? Go and share the gospel, right? Go and live in such a way that as you're living, you are causing people to look and go, where does that hope come from? And then boldly proclaim, it's all about him. Not me. Because if you try to make Christianity about you, you will fail. You will never live up to the good that you're supposed to live up to to somehow do that. You need to admit that I'm a sinner just like everybody else, but we both need a Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. And let me tell you about him. And that's what we've been called to do. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, as we're about ready to sing the phrase, how can this be that you would redeem a a sinner like us. May we stand and just glorify your name. And from that spot of praise and adoration, may we go into a lost and dying world, knowing it is by you and you alone that we live. By grace we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so may that be our anthem, may that be our theme. Prepare us for this week. You know what we will face. You know the challenges. You know the ups. You know the downs. You know what's going to take place. So help us to be faithful. Help us to be patient, understanding that we are to submit to your all-sovereign plan and give you glory for whatever comes our way. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen.